All right, well, if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Luke chapter 5. Um, we are going to be in Luke chapter 5, and then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to look at these two kind of bookends of uh, discipleship. We've been going through this uh, series four chair discipleship, and we've talked about how the first chair, just as a metaphor, is uh, when God says, uh, Jesus says to the non-believer, come and see. And then that first chair, we t- second chair we talked about last week, which was that uh, to, the, to the infant or to the child, follow me. And the third chair is a little bit more difficult. This is uh, come and die. And so we're going to take a look at that. And in my study for this this week, I came across, a, I believe it's a Toby Mac country western song that's uh, the exact opposite of what we're talking about, but I, I thought it was funny. The song apparently goes like this. We talk about your work, how your boss is a jerk. We talk about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about your troubles you're having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the devils in your chin, uh, the polish on your toes and the run in your hose. And God knows we're going to talk about your clothes. You know, talking about you makes me smile, but every once in a while, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my, I want to, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, but occasionally I want to talk about me, me, me. And uh, we do like to talk about ourselves, and uh, we are going to talk about the secret sauce of discipleship. Now, when I say secret sauce, those of you who are my age or older, you, there's only one secret sauce in your mind, and it goes like this, right? Two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Uh, but hint, we are not talking about Thousand Island dressing today. We're talking about the secret sauce of disciple-making. And so we're looking at these two different passages. Uh, open up to Luke uh, chapter 5, and that's where we're going to start. And we're going to look at chair 3, the worker, the adolescent, and the young adult. Now, as we look at this passage, it seems like a repeat of the come and follow me passage. But when we look at the harmony of the Gospels, uh, what we have is Jesus came and he, he called his disciples, uh, at least Peter and John and a few of them, and they went on a missions trip. And uh, they did some, Jesus did some preaching and some different miracles, and they, they come back in, into Galilee, and I'm sure Peter's wife is like, hey, you know, you haven't been working and we got to put some bread on the table. So she sent him out fishing. And so the boys are out fishing again, and uh, they catch nothing, and uh, Jesus is preaching. This is, this is what, what has happened. So this is later. They've spent time with Jesus. They've been on a mission trip with Jesus. On one occasion, uh, Luke writes, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gerset, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, Notice there's a crowd. This is, this is further into Jesus' ministry, a little bit into Jesus' ministry. And so getting onto one of the boats, which was Simon's, uh, he asked him to put him out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus sitting in a boat, there's a bunch of people on the shore, and the disciples are out there after a long night fishing, mending their nets. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon asked, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. 
they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So again, they're, they're with Jesus for a period of time. Uh, they've seen him operate. They've, they've been following. And what we have here is, is Jesus moving these disciples into ministry. We're talking about the worker. And, and the worker is at the beginning part, learning to listen. Learning to listen to the discipler. And so uh, here's some things that, that we, we get from this passage. Again, this is a deep passage. We could go a little bit further. We're just we're picking up some notes on discipleship. So first of all, the disciples were available. The disciples were available. I mean, I, Jesus is a teacher. He's a great teacher. Peter is a fisherman. And, you know, you've been out fishing. This isn't recreational fishing. This is fishing to put bread on the table. And, and here Jesus says, all right, here's what I want you to do. Peter might have said, you know, Jesus, you're a great teacher, but I'm a fisherman. And it's the wrong time. Maybe it's the wrong season. We already did it, but, but, but Peter was available. And second, the disciples faithfully responded to a difficult request. Man, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. We just, we just cleaned everything up, but all right, you know, Jesus, we're, we're going to do that. Disciples respond faithfully to a difficult request. And what we learned about the disciples is that they were teachable. And I, I want to say that the, the thing that I want out of a disciple that's going to become a discipler, what I want out of a leader is somebody who is teachable. Man, Peter... And these guys, they, they, are, they are teachable, and they respond well to Jesus. Now, they go out. Of course, they catch a big catch, um, probably one of the biggest they've ever caught. The boats are sinking. The nets are breaking. And Peter has a unique response. He doesn't say, hey, let's do that again. We're making some big money. Jesus, you're on to something here. When he comes face to face with Jesus, when he sees Jesus operating, when he sees real things happening, he's humbled. He's, he's enthusiastic about the new things that he's, that he's learning, but he's humble. He, he, he responds to Jesus, and I'm a sinner. And, and so many times when, when things are going well, People go, look at me. Look what I'm doing. This works. But when we come face to face with Jesus, what we are overwhelmed with is our sinful nature. And fifth, the disciples are responsive and willing to go further. So what does he said? They, they left everything and followed him. This is the second time. This is a confirmation of that calling to come and follow him and become fishers of men. And so 
we look at this beginning stages, getting, getting a disciple into working in the church. They have to learn to listen. They have to be available. Uh, they want to be, they wanna, we want disciples that are faithfully responding to difficult requests. And disciples that are teachable. Disciples that are humble and they're willing to bow their knee to Jesus. And we need disciples that are responsive and willing to go further. So uh, move over to Matthew chapter 16. I said we're kind of looking at some bookends. And, and for me, this is, this is getting close uh, to the end of Jesus' ministry. And this is kind of what uh, some people have called the disciples' final exam. And so they're up north, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the town called Caesarea Philippi. And just so you, just a little background, Caesarea Philippi uh, formerly was where uh, the tribe of Dan and the northern kingdom uh, had their uh, capital. And uh, there was a bunch of Baal worship that happened in this town. And then over the years, uh, children's sacrifice happened there. Uh, during this time, it was really known for uh, the worship of Pan. And uh, there's a beautiful uh, um, kind of, a, not a well, but a, a underground water source that comes up into a river. It used to come out of this mountain, an earthquake. It really just comes out of the, the ground now after an earthquake. I think it was about 20 or 30 years ago. But anyway, there's this beautiful water that comes out of there. But you can still see in the rock these cutouts where there used to be, uh, you know, bale idols and pan idols. And it's just a, it's just a bad place. It's just a it's just a place with a lot of idol worship. It's not, it's not a place that a rabbi takes his disciples. And I'm talking about, you know, wanting to get away. I mean, they're not going to the beach. They're going to Vegas. And, you know, none of the good Jews will find us here. I don't know what, what they're happening, but they're, they go there and, and they set up. And, and Jesus is going to ask them uh, some, some questions to see where they're at. So we're picking this up in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read uh, through the end of the chapter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. I always thought that was a weird answer. John the Baptist was only, you know, six months older than Jesus, and so I'm not quite sure what the logic is behind that, uh, that Jesus was possessed with him or what. Others say Elijah, forerunner of the Messiah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he said to them, and here's the final exam question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, A plus. No, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you um, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it for you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he turned and he said to me, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter went from A plus to being called Satan. 
Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, if anyone who come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done or not done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So again, here's these two bookends. Now we're at, towards the end of uh, Jesus' ministry. The disciples have probably uh, spent two and a half, three years with him after this. Uh, it comes the transfiguration, and then uh, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. Now, there's still more time there, but, but this is the end. And so what we have here is some lessons on being a disciple. And the first thing is disciples know who Jesus is. Now, when we hear that, we go, yeah, we get it. Um, uh, Peter Right, he's asked, who do you think I am? And Peter, oh, 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 I know. Uh, you are the Messiah in the Old Testament that we've been waiting for. You're the one. And, and Jesus responds positively. It, this has been revealed to you by God. And, and, and on this, we're going we're gonna to build the church. And, and at first point, we go, okay, this is, this is basic, Dave. We, we know who Jesus is, but just... Just pause for a moment. In just moments later, days later, there's probably some time in there. The same person who said, you are the Messiah, is going to say, hey, Jesus, you're doing this wrong. That's not the plan. You can't die. You see, we come to a point in the infancy where we, we recognize Jesus, but really knowing who Jesus is, what it means that he's the Messiah. His death and resurrection, I mean, that's, that's something ongoing that we continue to learn more and more about. We got to come to that point where we, we grasp who Jesus is. We continue to learn about him and dig deep into knowing Jesus. Second, disciples know what side of the field they're on. Uh, we've got some... Uh, Big football games on uh, this weekend, and I'm going to assume that these experienced teams are going to know what side of the field that they're supposed to be on, although sometimes even these pros make some pretty incredible mistakes. And what I mean by this is this. Listen, church, we're on offense, not defense. Uh, he says it right here. Um, I will build my church, verse 18, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, the gates are the defense. And the church is bursting through the gates of hell. And I would argue that so many churches operate in the reverse. And the world out there is crazy. We live during a pandemic and I don't trust the government and and I've got all these different theories of what's really going on. And, and Jesus is going to return any time. So let's all huddle up in our church and hide till he gets here. We're not on defense. 
We're on offense. Disciples know the importance of the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. Disciples know the importance of the cross. Jesus says, look, I need to tell you guys what's going to happen because you're all going to be shocked and you're not going to get it, but we're going over there and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be put on a cross and I'm going to be killed. And on the third day, and I don't, they're not even listening at this point. And Peter, I've read the Old Testament. No, I don't think that's what the Messiah is supposed to do, Jesus. You know, the cross of Christ is really under attack in our culture. And I know for most of you, it's not. Uh, I'm just telling you that there, there is a modern movement uh, to question Christianity. And the thing that is most under question is the atonement of Jesus Christ. That Jesus had to die for your sins. And the reason that that's so under attack is because it's at the center of what matters the most. If Satan can get our young people to stop believing that Jesus is a good model and we want to love our neighbor, absolutely. Man, we want to Go to church. Satan says, go to church. Nothing ever happens there anyway. He keeps going, all this stuff. But if you want to you really rile things up, say that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that you must repent and receive him as Lord and Savior and follow him to spend eternity in heaven. And people go, whoa, 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 now you're being judgmental. Peter says, there's got to be a different way for us to get you in charge, Jesus, without the cross. It's the same temptation that is in Luke chapter 4 when Satan tempts Jesus and says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all this stuff. Look, let's, let's just say, Jesus, just, just admit that you're kind of an equal with me, and then you don't have to go through any of this other stuff. And Jesus knows there's no other way to the kingdom except through the cross. Ian Bounds said, all God's plans have the mark of the cross on them. Listen to that. All God's plans, things that matter, have the mark of the cross on them. And all his plans have death to self in them. If you want to know if God is in something, is it cross-centered and is it going to cost you something? Fourth, disciples know the path to the end. Sorry, I'm skipping, skipping ahead there in my notes. Uh, disciples know the path to the end. And hint here, it's suffering. Suffering's not the path we take naturally. And again, it's the temptation of Satan most often uh, throws your way. Look, that, that's going to be too hard. That's going to be too difficult. Um, not everybody's going to like that. You don't want to go down that path. So disciples know the secret sauce. The secret sauce of discipleship is learning to die to self. It's learning to die to self. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about the name of Jesus. It's about the cross. 
So the further we get in this discipleship process, the young adult learns to die to self. Now, many of us had a crash course in dying to self. It's called having a child. But in discipleship, it's about those young believers. It's about the lost. And it's about giving up of myself to see other people in the kingdom. So chair three, the young adult, learning to die to self. I'm just going to ask three questions. What does it mean? Why is it important? And then how do we do it? So what does it mean? Um, it's living a life of faith. Uh, in, in basic terms, um, the idea of dying to self means I have to trust God. The more that I give up of my things, myself, my kingdom, the more I have to trust in Jesus. So Paul said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See, see the death to self. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But the basic part of, of dying to self, it's just living a life of faith. Now, we said in this discipleship process, Jesus says, come and see. Uh, we have that. It's a quote from, from Jesus in the New Testament. Follow me. Um, again, that's, that's, Jesus said that to the disciples at least a couple of times. Follow me. And then the third chair, we said the phrase is come and die. Jesus didn't actually say that. He didn't say come and die. But the idea of dying to self, the idea of taking up your cross, of being crucified... This term, this idea of dying to self, I mean, as I was studying it, it was amazing how many times it came up. This phrase, this idea is repeated over and over and over again. Now, think about it for a second. You know, why does Jesus only have to say, come and see once? Come and follow a couple of times. And why does he have to say, come and die over and over and over again in many different ways. Because this is the trick. This is the hard part. This is the secret sauce. If you want to be a church that's bearing fruit and seeing people get saved, you need to learn to die to yourself. You need to learn to live by faith. Second, it's a life of putting Jesus first. We saw this in Matthew chapter 16 already. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is putting Jesus first. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I know that in your heart, many of you are going, yeah, yeah, we know that, Dave. I've heard that verse before. I've got it on a bumper sticker, okay? My, my wife, you know, knitted a little doily with it. Whatever it is, like we, we've heard the phrase. But I'm telling you, if you're trying to do it, you probably need to say that, face, that phrase to yourself daily because this is hard. I came across uh, this quote this week. So only a few of you will know who uh, Bette Midler is, uh, older congregation, right? But uh, she, she, I think this was in a movie or something. She says, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Right? I mean, isn't it quickly? I mean, she's like, oh. You know, you can imagine this conversation. Oh, we're finally going to talk about something. No, we're really just still talking about you. 
how many of our discussions in, in church and what we want to do and all these things is really just about what we want to do. It's a life that strives to get rid of selfish desires. In Galatians 5.24, Paul says, And those who belong to Christ have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to die to self. You're getting rid of those passions and desires of self. It's a life that seeks to put others first. Again, put Jesus first and we put other people first. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being uh, in full accord and one, uh, one of mind. We all love this stuff. Yeah, let's, let's be unity. Let's, let's all get along. But then he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Church, when we're talking to a bunch of saved people, whose interests are we talking about? I don't know. Should it be... Uh, this group of people's interests or this people group's interests, who should get their way? How about the people who are lost? What if we put the people who are not in the building's interests first? So why is this all important? Um, in life, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. That's the, the last point there. Sorry, I skipped ahead. And we think of John Baptist's statement as he looks to Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, no man can practice what our Lord illustrated here unless he has fin finished with himself, talking about dying to self, with his right to himself his right to determine what he shall do, and especially must he finish with what he commonly calls the rights of self. So why is all this important? Um, in John chapter 12, uh, Jesus says this. Again, here's repeating this idea of dying to self again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone saves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In John chapter 12. Uh, this week, uh, um, Jackie recommended in, a, in, a, in an odd way a documentary to us, um, and uh, it's a documentary about a, a guy who is kind of having a, a midlife crisis, a, a documentary maker himself, and uh, he, he basically takes, takes some time off, and he's going back to the sea, and he's doing some, some diving, and uh, 
he ends up uh, finding this octopus, small octopus, and he follows it for a year and, and documents. And, and he literally swam every single day for a year. Now, uh, it was, uh, again, I said Jackie recommended this to me. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, just so you know, octopuses only live for a year. And so she showed me, uh, she sent us a picture of my granddaughter at the end of this film. And it was heart-wrenching. And so we, uh, we needed to watch it now. And uh, we watched it the other night. And the end of the octopus's life, spoiler alert, um, she gives birth. And her last days are caring for and protecting her young to the point where it just basically takes the rest of her life. And when the young are released, and apparently there's, there's thousands of them, and, and uh, the, not all of them make it, so it's kind of a, you know, let's do as many as we can type of thing in, in creation, and she's spent, she's done. You know, from the Christian life, what if our last days were just us giving out so much? What if it was just spent so much of dying to self and giving to others that it literally shortened our time here on the earth because we gave too much? Why are we holding on? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will will honor him. Dying to self is the path to bearing fruit. Until you're willing to give up of yourself, you won't bear fruit. And listen to what Jesus says at the end. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Remember, through the path of the cross, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Dying to self is the pattern to bearing fruit. And dying to self actually saves our life. Jesus says, when you learn to give up your life, when you learn to serve others, when you learn to die to self, you're going to find so much more. Here's the paradox of life. To have an abundant life you need to learn to die to self. That's the secret sauce. But it's easier said than done. One person wrote this, everyone has two choices. Either you die to yourself and live now, or you live for yourself now and die later. The reality is dying to self is commanded. This, look, we've looked at a lot of different verses here. I'm not just saying, come on, folks, this is kind of a little thing in the Bible. What I'm saying is, this is where we're supposed to all be moving to. 
So how do we do it? You know, I, we have to start small. So I would say sacrifice the moment. And what I like to call this is looking for divine appointments. There's, there's moments where you're tired and uh, you're in a hurry and, uh, you know, it's somehow a conversation comes up or somebody gets your attention and you need to ask yourself, is this a moment where I'm supposed to die to myself? I had one at school the other day. I, was, I had been teaching and finished my, my third class and I was tired and I had to drive home. I needed to get somewhere. And uh, for whatever reason, after class, it was, there was like, students waiting to talk to me, and there were students on Zoom trying to, you know, I just, I kind of worked through all the questions. And I, I was tired, and I started putting my stuff away, and I, I saw one student still sitting at the back of the room. And there's a temptation to go, he had his chance. He, he didn't come up when everybody else was asking questions. But in my mind, I just paused for a moment. And I had to return a chair that was kind of over by him. And he said, I have a question on John chapter 6. And I looked at my watch. I knew that there was a class starting in 10 minutes. But I also knew that this could be a divine appointment. And it was. It was. There's moments where God gives us opportunities to serve, to die to ourselves. And too many times, we're just off to the next task that we have on our agenda to get things done for my family so that we have everything we need. Do you see what I'm saying? There are people all around us who are hurting. And if Christ comes back today, we'll die eternally. So we start by sacrificing the moment. And then second, we move toward more sacrifice. We move toward sacrifice. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our abilities. We sacrifice our comforts. We sacrifice our space. We sacrifice our money. Because we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that he's the only way to eternity because we believe he saved us for a purpose. So we need to learn rhythms of sacrifice, of giving more and more. And then ultimately, we sacrifice for the movement. What do I mean by that? Here at the church, there's only two people here that's involved in us getting the service ready. And as I walk down the hall to come into the sanctuary, we have a, an honor roll on our wall, don't we? The honor roll recognizes those who served in the military or those who ultimately gave their life for our nation. We have days... Uh, that we celebrate those who have served in the military. Please don't misunderstanding me. I'm not saying that that's not a good thing. But you know, how much do we honor those that sacrifice for the kingdom of God? 
Sure, we might take a missionary out when they're coming through or, you know, we have missionaries' pictures on the wall or send them something, but how much are we really sacrificing for the gospel? Now, I know some of our older folks go give far beyond their regular tithes and offerings to make sure that missions keep happening. But the idea here of giving of ourselves is that we continually give more and more for the gospel. So what's the application? Um, You know, pray that God would use you and then look for those little opportunities. Look for those divine appointments. Um, You know, if you just spend time each morning and as part of your devotion and reading God, just give me an opportunity to live for you today, to shine a light, to give an answer. And then you, you have to be on your toes waiting for that opportunity. Let me, let me step that up maybe even a step further. What if we prayed, God, what is it I need to give up? What do I personally need to give up for the kingdom of God? You say, well, fortunately, Dave, Jesus doesn't ask us to give anything up. You know, the Gospels read a little bit harder than that. The rich young ruler comes up to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, sell, sell everything. Give it all up. Quit worshiping your money. Jesus does not seem to care about the disciples' comfort at some point in time. Jesus, I'll follow you. I just need to bury my dad. Let the dead bury the dead. What's God asking you to give up? Let me ask you this. Some of you who have been around the church for many, 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 many years, has God ever asked you to give anything up? Are you listening for that? What would it look like for you to sacrifice for the gospel? When my grandfather passed away, um, I got some stuff that was in his Bible, and uh, this poem was in there. I find out later it's a hymn. It's in our hymn books. It's been a while since I've read it, and I want to close with this. Must I go and empty-handed, thus my dear Redeemer meet? Not one day of service give him, lay no trophy at his feet. Must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him must I empty-handed go. Not at death I shrink or falter, for my Savior saves me now. But to meet him empty-handed, thought of that now clouds my brow. Oh, the years of sinning wasted, could I but recall them now. I would give them to my Savior, to his will I'd gladly bow. Oh, you saints, arouse, be earnest, up and work while it is till uh, tis day. Ere the night of death overtake thee, strive for souls while still you may. How important are the souls of the people 
in this community to you? Will you face him empty-handed? And if you are, are you concerned? We need to learn to die to self. God, I pray that your words, not mine, would reach our hearts. That our love for those who are lost and dying would grow. That our ability to feel discomfort would grow. So that we could press into the community and see lives changed. God, I pray that it would not be true of us. That we would shy away at your coming because we were living for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.